Cornerstone, uh, my name is Christian Burkhardt. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Cornerstone. And this morning I have the opportunity to share with you about the next spiritual discipline that we're going to focus on during these 100 days. We're almost halfway through. We're right around somewhere in the 50s. And I hope that this has been a blessing to you in our time together so far. Whether you've kept up or fallen behind, I would just encourage you, let's continue to draw near Jesus together. Next Sunday, Todd's actually gonna just take a Sunday to almost have like a halftime conversation with us to guide us through what's worked well, what's been hard, conversations that we can continue in our home fellowship groups or, or uh, with whatever group you're a part of here at Cornerstone. But this morning, the next discipline that we're gonna look at is the discipline of solitude. This is a discipline that has become very dear to me. Over the last few years, I've learned to practice this, and it's been such a blessing to me in my life, and I would even say it's been a blessing to those around me as well. So I'm excited to share with you some of what I've learned this morning. But first, as we start out, let me define for you what I mean by solitude as a spiritual discipline. Solitude, being alone, but as a spiritual discipline is intentionally withdrawing for a time from normal relationships and interactions with others in order to draw near to God. It's being alone, whether for a few minutes or a few hours or even a few days, not just to get some me time, but to devote your time and energy and attention to God, to his word, to worshiping him, to praying to him, both for yourself and for others to seeking his will for your life. Solitude is time away from your normal relationships and vocations, those things that God has called you to do with your life, in order to draw near to God and then re-engage in those same relationships and calling, but with a renewed focus and dependence upon him. The discipline of solitude it creates a context for the practice of other disciplines that we've been talking about, like reading or meditating and studying scripture, disciplines like prayer. But more than just setting a context for other disciplines, solitude has some unique value in its own right, which makes it worthy of our consideration this morning. Think about it like this. Solitude is to fellowship as fasting is to food. Food is good. It's a, it's a necessary thing for our lives, but we can tend to misuse it, can't we? Or, or be ungrateful for it or lack control in how we consume it. Or even sometimes we just forget to acknowledge God as the one who gives us our daily bread. We get out of the habit of thanking him for it. In all these ways that a good thing like food can go wrong in our hearts, Scripture teaches us that from time to time it's good to fast to intentionally and temporarily forego the food that God gives us in order to focus our hearts on him as the giver so that when we go back to eating, which we have to do, we can do it with a renewed sense of focus and gratitude. I'm, I'm kind of stealing a little bit from what Todd's going to do with us in a few weeks when we take a whole Sunday to focus on fasting. But I want to do that because I actually think that fasting is a great way to help us understand solitude. As Spencer told us last week, fellowship, pursuing honest, gracious relationships with other Christians, fellowship is a good and necessary thing in our lives. Just like food, we can't be healthy without fellowship. But just like our hearts can attach wrongly to food, our hearts can attach wrongly to the people in our lives, can't they? We can start to resent or get impatient or controlling with those around us. 
We can become overly dependent upon people. We, we can try to make people fill the place that only God is supposed to fill in our lives. So in the same way, Scripture teaches us that from time to time, it is good and healthy for us to withdraw from relationships with people and practice solitude with God. Not to indulge our desire to be independent from people or to somehow punish ourselves because we get relationships wrong so often, like some sort of timeout. But rather, solitude is about practicing a greater dependence upon God than we have on people and asking him to prepare us to re-engage in relationships with those around us in a way that truly seeks their good and their growth, not just to use them to meet our desires. Does that make sense? So, so think of solitude as the counterpart to the discipline of fellowship that we talked about last week. Both solitude and fellowship are necessary ways that we as believers can place ourselves in the pathway and presence of God. Genuine fellowship, I would say, is to be the, the default, the regular pattern of our lives, while solitude should be less frequent, but still essential. It's a pattern that we cultivate ultimately for the benefit of our fellowship. Listen to the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the great pastor theologian from Germany during World War II, listen to the way that he describes the relationship between fellowship and solitude and, and even the danger that comes when either one of these disciplines is neglected. Listen to what he says. Only in fellowship do we learn to be rightly alone and only in aloneness do we learn to live rightly in the fellowship. Each by itself has profound pitfalls and perils one who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings, and the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Do you get his point? Whether you're an extrovert who naturally gravitates toward people, or maybe more of an introvert who naturally gravitates toward time alone, both fellowship and solitude are essential disciplines for all of us to practice in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Because we see both of these disciplines at work in the life of Jesus Christ himself. During the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at what the discipline of solitude looked like in the life of Jesus and what we can learn from his example. And then toward the end, I want to give some practical suggestions to how to begin or maybe sharpen your practice of solitude as a counterpart to the discipline of fellowship. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 1. And as you turn there, I just want to make a couple things clear. Truly, when we look at the big picture of the life of Jesus, Jesus came to us for the purpose of fellowship. He came to us to call us into a relationship with him and with the Father, with the Spirit. Truly, Jesus came also to gather us into fellowship with one another, to reconcile us to God and to one another so that we might be one family in him. Yet it's remarkable how often in the Gospels we read of Jesus, this same one who came to draw people near to him, purposely withdrawing from people in order to be alone with his Father, and particularly right before pivotal moments in his ministry. In Matthew 4, we, we read of how the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days of solitude and fasting 
in preparation both for his temptation by Satan and the beginning of his public ministry. Then here in Mark chapter 1, look at verse 35. We find Jesus right at the outset of his ministry. He's already called his first four disciples. He just finished teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. He'd cast a demon out from a man and then spent the rest of the day healing people and delivering them from demons. And after all that, look at verse 35. It says, And rising very early in the morning, the next day, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a solitary place, a place away from people and noise and commotion, a place for solitude. And there, it says, he prayed. Eventually, Peter came and found him, and he says, Lord, everybody's looking for you. But then, look what Jesus says in verse 38. He says, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Somehow, Jesus' time of solitude and prayer confirmed for him that it wasn't best to give the crowds of Capernaum more of his time and energy right then, but rather it was actually time to go elsewhere. You see, that's one thing that the discipline of solitude can do for us. It can help us to discern between what God wants for us, what we want to do, and what other people might want us to do. Those three things are not always the same thing. Sometimes, by intentionally withdrawing for a time from people, we gain greater clarity on where and with whom we need to refocus our energy afterward. Now, if you will, look over into Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at Luke 6, verses 12 and 13. In this passage, we read that Jesus went out on a mountaintop to pray, and he continued in prayer all night before God. Then, in the morning, he calls the disciples together, and he picks 12 of them, and he designates them to be his apostles, the ones in whom he would invest his time most intentionally, the ones he would pull the closest to him, because later on he would send them out to continue his mission. Think about this. Even Jesus had limitations on the number of close relationships he could manage at one time. Isn't that a comforting thought? If you're like me, and you often struggle to maintain a bunch of relationships at once, I find it really comforting to know that our Savior also had limitations. That he had to be selective with his time and attention. But here's the thing that's challenging. As Jesus selected who he would invest his time in, he didn't just pick his favorites. He didn't just pick the people that were easy for him to spend time with, the people he just clicked with. I mean, John 6 tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him, and yet still he called Judas to be an apostle, and he invested three-plus years of his life into him. I wonder how much time Jesus spent that night talking with his father about each one of the guys, their strengths, their weaknesses, the, the ways that the Spirit would use them in the future to build the church, even the pain that would come from Judas's betrayal. Whatever that night was like, we see that Jesus bathed the decision of whom he would designate as apostles in prayer during an extended time of solitude with God. But we also see, not only did Jesus practice solitude, he also called his apostles, his disciples, to practice solitude with him. 
Look in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, verse 30, we read of the disciples coming back from, I guess what you could say, the first short-term missions trip that Jesus sent them out on. He sent them to some of the surrounding villages to preach and teach and cast out demons and announce the good news that God's kingdom had come in him. And when they come back to him, in verse 31, Jesus says to them, he says, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. But here's the thing. As they're taking the boat across the Sea of Galilee to get alone with Jesus, the crowds spot Jesus and the disciples from the shore, and so they follow along. And by the time that Jesus and the disciples reach the other side and get off the boat, there is a massive group of people waiting for Jesus. And what I find amazing in this passage is we read of Jesus having compassion on the people because he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And so what he does is he changes his plans. Instead of getting that alone time with the apostles, he spent the day instead teaching the crowds. And then as it gets late, he, he grabs one kid's lunch and he miraculously uses it to feed all of them. This is when the feeding of the 5,000 happens. And after everybody's had their fill and the extras all been gathered together, he dismisses the crowds. He even sends the disciples away. And then he spends that night alone on a hilltop in prayer. You see, just like Jesus, sometimes in our pursuit of solitude, we need to have an appropriate interruptibility to, to not completely close ourselves to the needs of those around us, but if possible, to try to address those needs, even if it means changing our plans and, and then seeking solitude a little bit later. But here's the question in my mind. How did Jesus know, how did he have clarity on when it was best to be interrupted to serve people, like here in Mark 6, and then when to stick to his plan, even if it meant disappointing people like we saw back in Mark chapter 1. In one instance, he says, forget my plans, I'm going to care for the people. In the other instance, he says, I know they want me right now, but it's actually time to do something different. I mean, I guess you could say perhaps Jesus is God, so maybe he just always knew what the right thing was to do in each moment. But I look at Jesus' example, and I see this regular discipline of getting alone with his Father to pray, to, to align his will and his desires with his Father's. And then I see the way that he models this for his disciples, too, so that they would learn how to walk by the Spirit in both planned and unplanned ways. And here's what I see. The ability to discern between divine appointments and distractions between the unplanned activities and opportunities that God purposely puts in our paths to redirect us from what we'd planned to do, and then distractions, those things that, that just are an obstacle in the way of what he's called us to do. The ability, the sensitivity to discern between those two is, in, is cultivated in part through the practice, the discipline of solitude. Finally, Look in Matthew chapter 26. This is the amazing story of Jesus on the night before his crucifixion, gathering with his disciples for a time of prayer. Judas has already left to go get the guards to come and arrest Jesus. And Jesus takes the disciples with him into the Garden of Gethsemane, which as he says is a place that they would go frequently. And he says to the guys in verse 36, he says, sit here while I go over there and pray. 
And then he takes with him Peter and James and John, the kind of inner circle of the apostles. And he goes a little way away from the others with those three guys. And then he says to them in verse 38, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then Jesus goes a little bit farther off just by himself. And this is where he then falls on his face before God and he pours out his heart to his father and three times he says, can this cup of suffering be taken away from me? Is there another way? And three times he says, not my will but yours be done. He repeatedly submits his will. He submits himself to his father's will. And then he comes back and he finds that the disciples that he asked to watch and pray with him they couldn't do it because they kept falling asleep. Oftentimes in this passage, we focus on what the disciples didn't do, that they didn't stay awake, that they didn't pray with Jesus. But what I want to do right here, I want you to focus on what Jesus does here. Do you see what he does? He's seeking solitude, time alone with his father to cry out to him. Yet he also seeks fellowship. He, he enlists his disciples to pray with him even though not with him. It's, it's, it's as though he's saying, I need to go off to pray by myself because I'm about to head into the last and hardest phase of what my father has called me to do. I'm about to head to the cross. I'm about to bear the sin of the world and the thought of it is just about to crush me. And so I need two things at the same time. I need to be alone with my father, but I also need you with me. Not right here with me physically, but I need you there with me in prayer beautiful moment you see where both sides of the coin are used at the same time. Fellowship and solitude working together. I need solitude with my father and I need you to stand with me. Gosh, I can tell you, there have been times in my life where I've, I've been, felt compelled in a similar but, but much lesser way as what I see of Jesus right here. Times when I've known I need to go be alone with God for a while, but I reach out to those closest to me, to my wife, to my kids, to close friends, and I say, could you stand with me in prayer while I'm gone? Because I'm going away so that I can seek God's strength and wisdom, ultimately so that I might love and serve you better. David Mathis, in his book, Habits of Grace, which I would highly recommend to you, I think it's one of the single best books on the spiritual disciplines. In his chapter on solitude, he says that the goal of solitude is not just that you come back rested and refreshed, but he says this, he says that you come back more ready to love and sacrifice. That in solitude, we want to find new clarity, resolve and initiative, to return prime, to redouble our efforts by faith in our callings in the home, among friends, at work, and in the body of Christ. Gosh, that's what I see of Jesus in this scene in the garden. He withdraws in solitude while asking his disciples to pray with him. And while there alone with his father, he submits his will to the father, receives strength from the father. Luke 22 tells us that actually the father sent an angel to Jesus to strengthen him in that moment. And then our savior stands up ready to love and sacrifice for us whom he loves even to the point of death. That's the Jesus that you and I follow. 
if Jesus needed to regularly withdraw to be alone with his Father, to gain strength and perspective through private communion with God, not in order to run from fellowship and get away from hard relationships, but to enable him to run back into those relationships with renewed clarity and commitment. If that's what Jesus, the God-man, needed, how much more do we need that? If this is what Jesus has modeled for us, are you willing to follow his example? Are you willing to build a discipline of solitude as a less frequent but equally important counterpart to your discipline of fellowship? If so, let me take a couple minutes to give you some practical steps into solitude. The first thing I would say is this. Look for ways to utilize the alone time you may already have. Look for it. When do you tend to be alone during your day? Do you, do you tend to get up before the other people in your household or maybe stay up later than them? Well, rather than just getting a head start on daily chores or maybe staying up late and binge watching another show, I would encourage you to redeem that time alone by using it to draw near to God, to learn to enjoy being alone with him, to utilize maybe the daily reading and prayer plans in the 100 days pathway. Maybe, do you commute to work by yourself? Maybe you're in the habit of just turning on the radio or listening to music, but what would it look like to use that time to be alone with God, to maybe listen to scripture as you're driving, or listen to worship songs, or, or have it quiet in the car so that you can pray to God about your life and about the people in your life? Think about this one. Have your kids recently gone back to campus for school? If you suddenly now find yourself having some of that time back while they're in school, before you just refill that time with running errands and other activities, I would encourage you, utilize at least some of that time to draw near to God. Build that habit before you build others to fill the time with. Maybe your kids are still at home. Maybe they're too young for school yet or something like that. And what I would say is this, you may need to, with your children in the home, help them learn the discipline of giving you some time alone too. Maybe try setting a timer. Set a timer, let your kids know how long it's gonna be, and then patiently let them know that, that anything that they might want from you or may want to say to you, unless it's truly an emergency, needs to wait until the timer goes off. There'll probably be a learning curve. It may be hard for them to do it at first, but stick with it because you're modeling this important discipline for them. Not only that, you're helping your kids grapple with the important reality that Jesus ultimately has a greater claim on your life and your affections than they do. If you have young children, maybe you and your spouse or maybe another friend with kids, maybe you can trade off taking the kids for 30 minutes or an hour in the morning or in the evening to, to give each other some time alone with God. Basically, what I'm saying is get creative. Explore, find, or create time to be alone, and then resist the temptation to fill those few alone moments that you might have with extra noise and activity. In fact, this week in the Journey Pathway, the daily reading plan, there won't be any extra Bible project videos or even devotionals from people here at Cornerstone. Those have been so great, but we felt like in a week of focusing on solitude, the best way to serve you was to create some space even in that pathway for you practice it. 
So that's the first thing. Look for alone time that you might already have and how to redeem it. Perhaps you're already redeeming some of those alone moments during the day. Maybe you got a running start on this discipline of solitude. And if so, I would encourage you, if that's you, push, push it a little bit. Try this. Carve some time in your schedule at some point between now and the end of this year to spend at least several hours or perhaps an entire day or even a couple of days alone, just you and God. I've done that a few times in my life, particularly during important or trying times in my life, and I can tell you they have been profoundly impactful. But I'll also say these, these take a lot more planning, especially making sure that the people closest to you, your spouse, your kids, etc., they, they know why you're doing it and why you're not doing that. You're not just trying to get away from them. The first time that I, I set up to do kind of a multi-day retreat alone was during my first sabbatical about five or six years ago. And, and to be honest, my wife kind of had a hard time understanding why I wanted to do it. She's like, why do you just want to go be by yourself? But when I came back and she saw how rejuvenating it was for me, how much more clarity and commitment and, and, and energy I had to re-engage with her and with our kids and with the other people in our life, well, she was sold. A, a couple years later, when I had another really trying time in ministry where I just felt really discouraged and just worn down, my wife actually arranged another getaway for me to get away for a couple of days just by myself. And she told me I had to do it because she saw the effect it had on me before. And I can say, Jen, I've been so grateful for your support in this learning process. But if you do try to spend an extended time alone in solitude, I would encourage you, however long it is, a day, a couple of days, think of that time in thirds, in three sections. The first part is all just about disconnecting and decluttering your heart and your mind from just the normal pace and activity of life. In my experience, this first disconnecting part is one of the hardest parts about solitude, but it's so important. The second part is really the heart of it, which is all about communing with God, taking time for extended prayer and conversation with God now that your heart is stilled and discluttered. Sometimes this time is really still and quiet. It's being alone in a quiet place. Sometimes it's more active. You go for a hike, you go out surfing, you spend time swimming in the ocean or something like that. Even sometimes just going for a long drive. Ultimately, it's about enjoying being with God, having contentment, just being in his presence. Honest, exposed, without any pretense. It's, it's like being a little kid who gets to go on a special outing with your father. Because if you are a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what you're doing when you're practicing solitude. The third, and this is essential, on any extended time of solitude, the third important part is all about preparing to re-engage in your relationships and your callings. This is the time for asking for wisdom, to, to active, actively depend upon God and seek his will for your life and your relationships. To that sense of rest and contentment. Lord, how do I bring this back with me as I jump back into the flow of life? Both that day as you return, I'm coming home to my family this evening. Here's how I want to readdress them. And even forward into the future over this next year or two or five years. The question I would ask all of us, whether you, you feel like you're just starting out or you're ready to push, where do you need to start this week? What sounds good to you about what I've talked about with solitude? What maybe sounds scary about it? What do you feel would be doable for you 
but would also still stretch you at the same time. Don Whitney wrote another great book on spiritual disciplines. He compared it like this. He said, the person who rarely exercises struggles with both a brief climb up the stairs and a mile run. But the person who jogs every day has no trouble with either. In the same way, the person who has a time of daily spiritual exercises is the one who most enjoys both minute retreats and extended periods of silence and solitude. So where are you at? Where do you need to start exercising this discipline of solitude? Just climbing a few steps, just, just seizing a few minutes of solitude on a daily basis? Or are you ready to stretch your legs and stretch your lungs and go on a run with God for a while? Whatever it is, go for it. As long as communing with God is your focus, there's no one right way to practice solitude. Solitude can be calm and quiet and contemplative, or, or it can be playful and adventurous. It can be filled with joy and laughter or with tears and with lamenting. Sometimes I've found that solitude can be very introspective, that, that I'm asking God to search my heart, to expose sin or pride or fears. I'm, I'm practicing confession and receiving God's forgiveness. Maybe there's pressing decisions in, in the near future or the farther future. I'm seeking God's will both for right now and maybe for that more big picture for my life in the future. So sometimes solitude is very introspective, but other times it's more intercessory, that, that you're withdrawing from the people in your life in order to pray for the people in your life. You're recognizing that, that talking to God about those in your life is often more powerful than you trying to continue to just talk and get through to them. Solitude should look differently at different times. The point is not for us to try to chase a certain experience, but to simply place ourselves in the pathway and presence of God. If you're more of an introvert, with solitude, beware of the deception to view it as a chance to indulge yourself in the me time that you, maybe you naturally crave. Remember, solitude as a spiritual discipline is about being alone with God, not just being alone. So I would say, if you're more introverted, the question you need to wrestle with solitude is this. How does my time alone with God fuel my desire to love, serve, and sacrifice for others, to not just make it about me? Or perhaps if you're more of an extrovert, I would say when it comes to solitude, you need to beware of the deception to avoid solitude because it just sounds like punishment to you. It just sounds like you're on timeout because you've been bad or something. Perhaps you are more drawn to people, but solitude is still an important discipline for you to cultivate. Again, it's a way to fast from a good thing, fellowship with people, in order to enjoy a better thing, fellowship with God, and thus ultimately improve your fellowship with people. So the question that an extrovert needs to wrestle with is this. What does my relationship with God look like when no one else is around? I guess I could sum it all up with this. The practice of solitude helps us to learn to keep the two great commandments in their proper order. Do you remember what those are? When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment in the law was, he said that it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then he said there's a second that's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Through the practice of solitude, we learn to love the Lord our God supremely with all that we are as our highest priority. 
and therefore learn to truly love our neighbors as ourselves. So Cornerstone, as you take small or large steps into solitude this week, I pray that God blesses you with the richness of his presence, with a longing to commune with him, and then to throw yourself with renewed energy and focus into the hard and messy but beautiful work of pursuing community with one another. I love you, Cornerstone, and I'm praying for you. I also know that this week's election is a huge thing for all of us to pray about, both alone and together. So as we close, Todd wanted to share a few words with us to guide both our actions and our prayers this week. Well, all of us know that this Tuesday is the election. Now, on so many levels, I, I, I have fear, I have concerns, I have a lot of different thoughts and hopes and expectations, and I, I'm sure you're no different than I am. But I think today's message actually is perfect to kind of end with this, maybe a, a charge as we all now get ready to go serve within the, the nation that we live in, the community that we live in, in the voting booth. Now, all of us are going in there this particular week to vote for different people from our president down to our city council, for different items that affect our life that are gonna be on the ballot. But don't forget, you do not go into that booth to represent uh, an elephant. You don't go into that booth to represent a donkey. You go into that booth to represent the lion and the lamb. As you're in there, make sure you understand that vote is no longer your vote. That, that vote that when you came to know Jesus, that right now belongs to him. And so everything that we do is going to represent him. How we, we fill in those different little marks and, and tell the world, maybe in a secret way, but still what we believe about Jesus, it's happening that day. And then there's gonna be an outcome. Now, for all of us to understand, it doesn't matter who's elected or or what things pass or don't pass. Jesus Christ will still be sitting on his throne. He will still be reigning on high. And so as we now go into the coming weeks and maybe months, things could get crazy. They could seem out of control, but never forget this. We still stoop low and we wash feet. We wash the feet again of our friends and our family, but don't forget this. We also wash the feet of those didn't, that didn't vote like us. We don't just because things didn't go our way lose this high calling that Jesus was talking about. We stay in that mindset with that attitude. And I believe regardless of what happens, if we have that attitude and mindset, we're gonna represent Jesus Christ in such a way that people will see the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus. So don't, don't look at this week with trepidation. Don't look at this week with fear. Look at this week as an opportunity and may God bless you, may God bless our nation as we go and we represent King Jesus in how we vote. God bless you all, I'll be praying for you all, we'll be praying for our nation. And so let me just finish this way, let me, let me finish by praying before you start to talk about what it means to serve one another. <sighs> Father, we sit here today as your kids so thankful that you are in absolute control. 
we sit in the privileged position of knowing that you know the outcome of all these different things that are coming our way. You're not the author of evil nor the author of chaos. You are the author of goodness and the author of shalom. And whatever happens, Father, would we as your people, would we represent you well? Father, would we be honest with one another and transparent with one another? Would we hold one another up? Would we encourage one another? Father, as whoever might win or lose, may we not be sore losers or, or, or arrogant winners in any of these things, but instead, would we just have that position of your son of humility, knowing that who is in charge of our nation and the laws that govern us are subservient to the greatness of who you are. Gosh, would we have a mindset that was amongst Jesus or in Jesus' mind when, when he came to this earth? Would, would we not worry about all those other things, but would we just be a church that serves like Jesus, regardless of the outcome? And Father, then would people see our good deeds and would they glorify our Father who is in heaven? And so Father, would we take this high calling seriously and would this week, no matter what happens, would we stoop low like your son so that we might be rightly exalted by you? We give you all the glory in your precious name. Amen. God bless you all.